are dismissed at this time to Children's Church. I believe ages 4 through 7 can make their way back. And they can head upstairs. They'll be learning about some of the things we do here corporately. So that the hope is they can come back in and join us with a greater understanding of what it is we do in worship. My name is Pastor John McCombs. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at City Reformed. I want to welcome uh, all of you today, and especially if there are any uh, visitors with us, uh, welcome. Uh, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. It's printed in your bulletins on page 6, so I'll invite you to turn there now. And our custom at City Reformed is after the reading of God's word, uh, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and if you could respond with thanks be to God. Our text, uh, just for your information, is also found in Matthew chapter 12. It's very similar, verses 38 through 43. We'll be looking at one of those verses. And you find a short little version in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 11 through 13. So hear now the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign... But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been in the presence of greatness? If so, can you remember the last time you were in the presence of true greatness? Perhaps it was at an opera, and you just watched someone with a unique ability to sing pour their heart out into a performance that moved you in a way that you hadn't been moved in some time, and, and you were just left speechless. Perhaps it was at a sporting event. I'm looking at the loves right now. I don't know if you've ever been at a no-hitter, but perhaps you sat there through the end of a no-hitter. Or even a perfect game, and you were just like, wow, I have witnessed greatness. It could be in something as routine as a lecture. It could be a professor or a teacher who knows his subjects so well and puts so much energy and passion into it that when you left, you were just inspired by the greatness that you saw demonstrated as they instructed you. How did you feel? When you were in the presence of greatness, what did you say? Or maybe there was nothing you could say. Maybe you too were left speechless. Today we see in our text a kind of greatness that surpasses the greatest of human achievements. It's a greatness that can bring life out of death because it has overcome death itself. You see, something greater is here, and that something is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he went from death to life by way of the cross so that we in our lives too might do the same. And so he invites us as the one who is greater to turn to him, to have new life in him where there is only death, and to celebrate what he has done for us. So I start off with a question here. What is your generation looking for? Verse 29 here talks about this generation. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. What about your generation? Those who take the time to study generations today would say there are about six living generations here in America. This does not apply worldwide because these are largely based on events here that have shaped people more or less uh, in their common experiences and the narrative of their life to where they have shared experiences. Uh, So the the greatest generation would be the first generation. There aren't many people left in the greatest generation. Born before 1928, the greatest because they won the Second World War. When you see someone from the greatest generation, especially if they served in that war, thank them for what they did to serve. The things they lived through in the Depression, that's great. They are examples for us. They're wonderful things. Following on their heels, the silent generation. Uh, Folks generally call this born from about 1928 to 1945. They're a generation that's very big on tradition and very big on civic interest. Following on the heels of them, the baby boomers. I'm sure there are many in this room. Uh, born 1946 and 1964, both of my parents, uh, one living, one deceased, would fall into that category. They're known for being very countercultural in a lot of ways, uh, worked very hard, uh, but a lot of upheaval came uh, during the times uh, as those generations were coming to pass. Following them, Generation X, <clears throat> 1965 to about 1980, they're known for being very savvy in many ways. They're known to be very entrepreneurial, to go out there and just make things happen on their own. Following them, the millennials, right? Who likes to be called a millennial? Roughly in 1981 to about 1996. Known in many ways for diversity. Okay, good thing. Uh, And lastly, uh, Generation Z, we'll call them, uh, from about 1996 and on. Uh, And they're known as those who have basically lived their entire lives with the technology that we have today. Computers, phones, and the way that has shaped all of us, but they didn't know a time before that. So they've always been connected. This is all they have ever known. Now, there are many good aspects in each of these generations, but if a generation is seeking to be validated by God for its own strengths, the own things that it brings to the table uh, while it ignores its own weaknesses, then that generation is not in a good place. Some of these generations think they're the generation that finally gets it, right? Isn't kind of every generation the generation that thinks, oh, we finally get it, right? They look at their parents, right? They look at us, uh, and they're like, oh, you guys have no clue what's going on. We're the generation who finally gets it. Every generation always thinks that. Some of these generations might even think Uh, some more than others, that perhaps they don't need Christ. That they've got it all figured out on their own 
thank you very much. Well, the text here speaks of an evil generation. And why is the generation evil? Well, the generation in the text is evil because they're not coming to Christ genuinely. They're coming with other motives. Uh, In your additional scriptures, uh, chapter 11 of Luke, uh, verse 16, we'll read this. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So as Jesus is referring to this evil generation in the text, they're evil, right? And that's just a few verses before we are today because they're coming to test him. They're coming to put him in the wrong. They're coming to him on their terms and not on his terms. So we need to ask ourselves, with what spirit do we come to Jesus? Do we and those in our generation, whatever your generation is, come, or do we as a church come seeking to test him? Or do we come seeking to know him as he See, if you're looking to test him, if that's how you're coming to Jesus, then the sign you are seeking may not be given. And we see that as we continue on in verse 29 of our text. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no generation will be given to it. Sorry, but no sign will be given to it. Now make no mistake, our God is a sign-giving God. You can think throughout Scripture of the many signs that we see. You can think of the proactive signs that God has given in the Old Testament, the sign of the rainbow, uh, the sign of what we would call the Old Testament sacraments, circumcision, the Passover, right? a family meal that taught people about how God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now he redeemed them from their physical slavery in Egypt. We can think of other signs. In the New Testament, we can think of baptism. We can think of the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake of later today. In the New Testament, we can think of Christ's many miracles. Think of the Gospel of John, how it refers to all of his miracles as So many signs are just proactively given by God. But when we pause for a second and think about those miracles, some of those are actually reactive, are they not? People coming to God by faith and him showing them something. Him healing them. Him casting demons from people. Him raising people from the dead. Him turning water into wine. We see all of these, not to mention even Old Testament signs. Didn't Gideon come a couple times, make the fleece wet and the ground dry, make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and God, right, despite Gideon, met him with those signs. So if we come with the wrong spirit, God may not give us a sign, but when we come with the right spirit, we see often throughout Scripture that we do get signs. That's why some get signs and and others often do not. The simplest explanation for it. Uh, It may not apply in necessarily every case. So the spirit in which we come to God is very, very significant. Luke chapter 7, uh, verses uh, 31 through 34, he talks a little bit more about this generation. It's in your additional scriptures. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? 
They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We can see here there were some cynics among them, weren't there? They were very cynical. They were neither mourning over their own sin, nor were they rejoicing in the greatness of God. As we might expect, unbelief won't believe signs either. And we see that in chapter 16, uh, verses 30 through 31 of Luke. This is at the end of a well-known parable. Uh, I'm going to call it a parable. You can uh, uh, call it something else if you like, and we can talk about that afterward. As he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Uh, Jesus said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Unbelief doesn't get signs because unbelief doesn't believe signs. Or so often is the case. In fact, unbelief hardens itself in the face of great signs. Listen to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, also in your additional scriptures. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing him. In the midst of such great unbelief, in the midst of such hardened hearts, even as far from Israel as Nineveh, grace quite often breaks through, does it not? We see grace breaking through in the sign of Jonah being given to the Ninevites. Back to our text for today. Uh, so the crowds are increasing. Uh, this generation, Jesus says, it's an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You see, God sent a man to the people of ancient Nineveh. And by all standards, they were a wicked people. They were a barbarous people. They took people captive. They did things that you don't even want to read about except for history books. They are just brutal in many, many ways. And God sent Jonah against his own will. And, of course, you know the story there. I think you know the story there. If, if you know the story of Jonah, uh, or if you don't know the story of Jonah, either way, I'll invite you to come to our evening service tonight as we start, Naaman leads us into the text of Jonah to come learn more about Jonah. But I think we all know, and I'll share enough of the narrative uh, that we'll understand how it applies here. You see, the sign of Jonah is referred to in this text, um, and, but it's not fully explained. So when we look at that parallel text I told you about in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, which is in your additional scriptures, uh, we read this, Matthew chapter 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. The sign of Jonah is Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Jonah was virtually dead, right? It's as if he was dead when you're living in the side of, inside of a great fish 
probably a whale, uh, really no difference uh, to someone uh, in a small boat in that part of the world. At that time, they see something in the water that's very, very big. It's a fish. And he's three days inside of that. And from that, he gets spit out onto dry land. Now, three days inside and then a three days walk to get across Nineveh. I'm not sure how much of the stench came off him by then. But he might not have smelled real good. Might not have looked real great. It's as if he came back from the dead. And that is the sign of Jonah here. And he went and preached this simple message. This is Jonah's message. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. God in his grace sends people to places like Nineveh. Places where we would think they don't deserve a chance at God's grace. God sent someone in 2007 named Pastor Bryant to Nineveh to preach his grace. God sent my wife and I there from two different places before we knew each other in 2007 to receive God's grace at different levels. Some of us experienced it deeper than we had before. Some of us meeting Christ for the very first time. God sends people to places like Nineveh. God sends us to places like Nineveh to meet him. This is the sign of Jonah that this man three days and three nights in a fish gets spit out and goes and preaches. And we know what happens and we will come back to that. So the sign of the Son of Man falls on the heels of Jonah. You might think, well, that's the only sign, he said. They're not getting another sign, right? No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. But verse 30 goes on, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. It wasn't the only sign. It was just a type of sign. And Christ is the fulfillment of that sign. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 again, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was the type or the shadow. Christ is the reality. Jonah nearly died. Christ did die. Roman symbol of death. This kind of death that they wouldn't even give to their own citizens. It was so ill thought of. It was so difficult. It was so disgraceful. Christ took that brutal sign upon himself, that picture of defeat, and yet Christ didn't stay on that cross. And when they put him in the ground, he didn't stay in that tomb. Christ flips the symbol of death into a symbol of life. What is the sign of Christianity if it is not the cross? You know, by the way, that cross behind me right there, it's not a crucifix. There's nothing on it. He is risen. He is risen Indeed, he's not there. It's a picture of death turned into a picture of life. It's a sign that leads us through death into life because Christ went through that cross, through death, 
and into life. This is the sign before you today. This sign that leads from death to life. This is the sign that you must consider. So let me ask you, will you continue to look for a sign? Or will you repent at the sign that has been given? Let's see how others in the scriptures have responded to uh, this sign and the signs of the presence and greatness of God. Verses 31 through 32, we read this. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, this reference takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 10. You can find it also in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 9. And it's in your additional scriptures. And we read this. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels uh, bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon... The house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. She took a breath. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happier are your men, happier are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. She actually came to put him to the test. And she was left breathless. Not quite speechless. She had a few words to say, but breathless. But the few words she could utter were words of praise and adoration, homage to the king, to whom she gave gifts and then praise for the God of that king. She humbled herself. She paid homage. Certain men in our text were coming to test Christ. What should they have done? They should have seen Christ. They should have paid homage. They should have bowed down. But of course we know they did not. What about these Ninevites? How does that story end? Well, again, come tonight to learn more, but here's the preview. Uh, Luke uh, 11.32 plainly says that they repented. They repented to Jonah's short little sermon. They believed God, they repented, and renewal came. 
renewal in their land, which is the tide of what we've been going through in our series in the book of Nehemiah, repentance leading to renewal. That text also speaks of judgment, a day in which eternal life or death will be revealed for all people. that day there will be no hiding it will be revealed for all whether they have chosen death or chosen life but on that day itself there will be no choosing today there can be choosing today you can choose death or choose life on that day what you have chosen will be revealed so this day will we humble ourselves before god will we repent that renewal might come Will we do that either for the first time, if we've never done it before, and if we have, will we do it again and again and again when our choices, when our actions, when our words, when our thoughts are leading us to the path of death? Will we turn back to Christ and have life? I don't know how many of you read Table Talk. I was blessed by the weekend devotional that they had this last weekend, uh, written by Leonardo de Chirico pastor of Breccia di Roma in Rome. He sounds pretty Italian. Uh, And he's talking about uh, the leaven of Herod. And and at first, uh, what he's going into is those who take an interest in Jesus, uh, they're interested in religious things, uh, but they have kind of a supermarket religion in which they take what they like and reject the rest. I think a little of that was revealed in the Bethany Baptist uh, skit uh, that Andrew uh, wrote and went over uh, very well. But they don't go to scripture to learn what Christianity But then he goes into a second part, and he's talking about repentance and unbelief, right? And he says unbelief brings with it a complex psychology. Many people are willing to listen to the gospel. They might even agree with many things that the gospel points out. But when it comes to repentance, to changing their lifestyle, they stop. The claims of the gospel are radical. Repentance means abandoning our sinful ways and discovering new ways of living that are holy. Repentance means leaving sin, confessing it, being sorry for it, and wanting to learn how to please God and to love one's neighbor. Many women, uh, men and women respect God's people and want to listen to them, but when it comes to repentance, they shut the door. They want self-realization rather than repentance. They look for ways of self-affirmation rather than self-discovery. But there's no way to life except through Christ. And the only way is through Christ who has gone before us. In this short little talk of judgment in our text today in Luke chapter 11, let me ask a question. What do all those who fare well in this judgment have in common? What do all those who fare well in this judgment scene have in common? Well, let me tell you first what they don't have in common. They don't have in common their nationality or ethnicity. They're from very different, unexpected places. They don't have in common their gender. It's Queen of Sheba, uh, men of Nineveh. Of course, I think we understand that to mean men, women, children, boys and girls, right? Uh, But there's no difference with regard to gender. Uh, There's no difference if we take that understanding with regard to age. Who knows how old the queen was? But if that men of Nineveh reference refers to men, women, and children, there's no difference with regard to age. And and lastly, there's no difference with regard to social status. There's no possible way every man in Nineveh was as rich as this queen. 
There's no difference with regard to any of these things. But what do they all have in common? Those who fare well in this judgment all have in common that they humbled themselves before the Lord. That they repented of their own sinful ways. You see, something greater has come. Something greater than the things that we so often try and find our self-worth in has come. Something greater than the things we so easily believe can bring us renewed life. It's come. Something greater than the things we so foolishly place our hope in for eternity. Every one of us here will stand in that judgment. And every one of us here is is a few hours closer than we were when we woke up this morning. Only one thing, only one person can bring life out of death, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. In a world where everything around us but Christ, in some way, shape, or form, brings death or leads us to death, will you turn to life? Wars bring death. War heroes die just like we did something greater comes. Traditionalism and moralism bring death, but something greater is here. Rebellion and revolution bring death, but something greater is here. Intellectualism and individualism lead to death, but something greater is here. Diversity not united to Christ brings death, but something greater is here. Virtual connectedness leads to isolation, loneliness, pictures of death, but something greater is here. Folks, something greater has come. It's the person of Jesus Christ, and something greater is coming back. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead And in fact, it's not just that he was here and he's coming back. He's here now by the power of his Holy Spirit whom he has left as a promise and a guarantee, a down payment on our salvation in him. Christ is here. Something greater is here. Will we turn to Christ together as God's people? And will we take this message of death to life to a world that so desperately needs it? They need it just as much as you and I. Will we turn to Christ? 